have a, a little daisy chain of texts that I want to walk you through at risk tonight of playing fast and loose with here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, which is not the way that I really like to do it. Um, I know that's a, because that's easy to do. You can just take your Bible, grab a verse that sounds like it applies to that verse, which sounds like it applies to that verse, and then just sort of throw them all up there. And if you do it fast enough with enough authority, people go, well, he must know what he's talking about. I mean, he had seven verses and they made relatively good sense together. And we've had a lot of false doctrine built off of seven verses that sound relatively good together that don't go together at all. Um, so I know I run the risk when we do verse, different chapter, different book, verse, different book, verse. Um, but I'm going to risk it anyway. And I'm going to do it because I know that we've t traveled this road together. I wouldn't walk into a strange place and do that and go, I'm going to throw five, six unrelated verses at you and make a point. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trading on that trust a little bit tonight. All right. So saying that up front. Um, also, I, I do this um, because that phrase, the spirit of grace has really been bubbling up inside of me over the last week or so, um, as something that, um, I want to, something that has been transforming me. I, I, I'm not trying to overstate this because I don't want to be melodramatic, but I, there, I don't know any other way to say this. There's been something happening in me that has been direct result of having a freshened revelation of the spirit of grace and what the spirit of grace means as opposed to the other spirits in the world. When I say that, I'm not trying to sound as if I'm naming demons or I'm identifying darknesses, but I do believe that the world is influenced by the spiritual powers of darkness. And by world, I mean the whole world we're living in. I, I think there are systems at play behind what we are involved in. And I don't mean that we should be avoiding everything. The answer is not, well, there's a system in the world, so we don't, we don't deal with the world. That's not possible. You're going to deal with the world. You deal with the world every day. Being a Christian doesn't exclude you from dealing with the systems of the world. Jesus dealt with the systems of the world every day. He dealt with the systems of religion. He dealt with the systems of power. He dealt with systems of, of overt authority. He had to deal with them all the time. You just deal with them. You don't run from them. And you certainly don't pray God take you out of them. So if you're going to be in this world and the systems of this world are doing their thing, what has God given us that's greater? I think that's the spirit of grace. And I don't think the spirit of grace is just some little mist that moves in the room every time somebody finally has a revelation of the love of God. I think the spirit of grace is at work all the time. It's just waiting on us to meet the spirit of grace by faith and just allow grace to do its work in our hearts. So before we give you any text, I, I want to just give you a thought and we're going to give you several thoughts tonight. But I want to give you a thought. You can work on it. Think about it. These are the kind of things that maybe as your week goes along and you dwell on them a little longer, they'll mean something else to you. Stop hearing what people say or think of you as the voice of God. That's the sentence the Holy Spirit gave me first a week ago that prompted tonight's message. He said, son, you too often 
are listening to other people and what they think about you, the sermon you preached, the, the who you are, what you do, you take that and too often you confuse it with what I think of you. Now, I know nobody else has that problem. That's probably completely unique to me. So I'm not going to preach to any of you about that, but only to say to what I've been saying to myself over and over again is stop allowing the thoughts and opinions of other people to shape what you think God might be saying to you because what will happen is you'll get chased by the ghosts of your past. You'll get chased by former pastors, by your dad, by your mom, by your Sunday school teacher when you were a kid, by something someone in an innocuous way said to you that you took as the gospel. And you've had that as God's voice your entire life. You heard that when you were nine years old, someone said it to you. And you kept it in there and confused it with God. And God went, that wasn't me. I know you think that man was godly, and he was. But he wasn't speaking for me that day. I know you love that woman. You think the world of her. But she's not my voice. She has her own voice. And she was speaking her problems into you. She was projecting her faults. and She was giving her hopes and dreams and putting them onto you. I had that done a lot. People prophesy over you, say stuff over you. Take it as a voice of God. And only years later you go, that wasn't God. God didn't say that to me. And that's, that discovery is part, I think, of this, what, we're trying, what I'm going to try to say tonight about the Spirit of Grace. So stop hearing what people say or think of you as the voice of God because it allows others to judge you. It allows others to put you under condemnation. Because if you let other people tell you what they think of you, and that becomes the voice of God, then what they say to you has more weight. Because it's God. This is the danger inherent in the whole mentoring aspect of Christianity. I, I get... People will call me or email me and go, I love your ministry. I'd love for you to be like a spiritual mentor to me. And my response to that is, I don't believe in it. <laughs> because the problem, I'll, I'll give you advice. We can be friends. I'd rather be your friend. I don't be your mentor. Because what happens if I become your mentor, you'll stop listening to God and you'll start calling me first. And then if I tell you something that doesn't line up with what the peace of the Holy Spirit's telling you, if you're not careful, you'll listen to me first. Because you'll go, well, Paul White hears from God. He's my mentor. I've got to do what he tells me to do. And then you atrophy your own ability to follow the Spirit. And what happens is I can become a voice that puts you under condemnation because you listened to a sermon that I had or you, something that we talked about on the phone and, 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 or an email that you read. And suddenly that becomes bigger to you than your own ability to hear from God. And I don't think there's any one of you in this room, and I don't think there's anyone watching that doesn't have the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit. You just may need to practice. And so hearing from other people is great, but they cannot become the voice that determines what you do with your life. So present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. I'm just quoting scripture here, right? This is Romans 12, 1. 1 and 2, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But don't do it in an attempt to be holy and acceptable. Do it because you are. And see, it's just as simple as reading it that way. Present yourselves, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Not present yourself as a living sacrifice so that you'll be holy and acceptable, because that'd be your reasonable service. And so doing so means this is what I am. Not what people say about me. Not what people think about me. Not how they judge me. What I am is holy and acceptable in Christ. And if I'm acceptable to Christ then what everybody else says or think, and this is big. This has been, this is me. More than I want to admit, but this is Paul White. Whatever other people say or think really can only affect my natural mind and my natural mood, and man, it does. And if I let it affect my natural mind and my natural mood long enough, 
it starts to trick me into thinking it's God. Because I've listened so long to what somebody else says. And you might think, how is that possible? You know what God sounds like. Of course I know what God sounds like. So do you. And yet we're still susceptible when we allow the voice, the judgment, the condemnation of other people to become loud in our spirit and repetitive. We still can fall underneath that where we start to believe the bad news about us. And this is very much why we have to continuously repeat the good news to people. Because they're hearing enough bad news. In fact, we love the bad news in, in the church. We dig it, man. In fact, a lot of people will, will quit and go somewhere else if there's not enough sin preached. If you don't hammer away at evil enough, they'll just quit. They'll be like, God ain't there. You, if you don't hammer away at sin any more than that, the Holy Spirit can't be there. If you give too much love, too much forgiveness, too much mercy, too much grace, all of which, all of those are oxymoronic statements. I mean, how could you have too much forgiveness? I mean, you're forgiven or you're not. You're too forgiven? Well, you, mean, you needed to be a little unforgiven? Is that what you were looking for? You were looking for like 98% forgiveness, 2% guilt? No, there's no such thing as too forgiven, too merciful, too gracious, too loving. But if we are in an environment of that, we go slip back into that old stuff, looking for that pain, looking for that angst. All of that leads me to the thought, the spirit of grace. And to do that, there is a verse. And I want to start with just one. And actually, I think most of what I've given you tonight is one verse, maybe two connected here or there. And they're going to look disparate and all over the place, but I, I hope I can walk you through why I felt like the Spirit put these scriptures in this order in my heart. And that doesn't mean that they have to be this order in yours. But for purposes of this word, Spirit of Grace, this is where I feel led to go. To start with, there's the phrase. It's at the very end of our verse, and there's a question mark on it. So we know that the author is asking his audience a question that needs answered. So let's ask it and try to answer it. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? All right, before we answer it, let's give you some context. Hebrews is a book written, and, and we're going to get into some deeper context in a second on the screen, but I just want to say this before we go. Hebrews is a book written to a Hebrew audience who've come to accept Christ. And in the Hebrew audience, you have Moses and Torah as your background. So you have blood sacrifice, you have natural priesthood, you have incense, you have feast days, you have the calendar, of all that, Sabbaths. And uh, just before this verse, the author of Hebrews says, under Moses, everything was condemned by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And what that means is that if you were going to accuse someone of breaking the law under Moses, you took what they did and you had two or three witnesses to that account. So if you wanted to find somebody guilty under the breaking of the law, you needed two or three witnesses. And those two or three witnesses could then actually, if it was a certain kind of offense, those two or three witnesses could uh, perform capital punishment. In fact, two or three witnesses was capital punishment. You didn't need two or three witnesses for every offense of the Torah. But if you were going to stone someone to death, you needed to do it with two or three witnesses, which is probably a pretty good idea. Because if you're going to have an offense which someone can be killed by, it'd be better to have two or three people that witness to it than just one person. Because if just one person could witness, you could just get anybody killed anytime you wanted. Say, so here's what I saw him do. Oh, okay, well, stone him to death. 
So two or three witnesses was sort of to ramp up the, the judgment code of the law so that two or three witnesses could then um, coalesce around the breaking of the law. So what the author says then, how w- much worse would it be, because we're contrasting the law, two or three witnesses to kill you, how much worse would it be for those who trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, how much worse would it be for the individual if you, if under the law two or three witnesses could kill you, how much worse would it be if you uh, walked across the blood of Jesus, the only sacrifice you're going to get, by the way, that's the end of sacrifices is Jesus' blood. You stepped across the blood of Jesus and insulted the spirit of grace to go back into sin. So let's try to shore this up. Written to Hebrews who are tempted to go back to animal sacrifices, but there is nothing to go back to. If judgment was severe under imperfect sacrifices, how much more would it be under a perfect sacrifice? That's the real question. That's why the question mark's there. If judgment was severe and all you were killing was lambs and goats and pigeons and turtle doves, how much worse would the judgment be if there was not a lamb involved? It was just, it was Jesus. Just Jesus. He's the sacrifice. The writer of this verse is not giving a prophecy. The writer of the verse is taking judgment out of our hands, which is where judgment had been under Moses. And he was leaving the vengeance game to God who left the vengeance game to Jesus. Because after Hebrews 10, 29, he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of, God, of God. Let God be the one who brings revenge, not us. And so under the law, judgment was in our hands. But under grace, judgment is in God's hands. So the author of Hebrews says, man, you can go sin under the law and, it, and, and it's people that will kill you and condemn you. If you stepped across the spirit of grace, he doesn't say if you step across the spirit of grace, it's God that'll kill you. No, he says if you step across the spirit of grace, you don't go into the hands of people to judge you. You'd go into the hands of God to judge you. Hear the difference. What happens to you in people's hands? Two or three witnesses, they'll stone you to death. He goes... He doesn't even tell you what will happen in God's hands. He just says, you step across the spirit of grace, it's not people that you need to think about. It's God that you need to think about. What we've done is we'll read Hebrews 10, and all we see in this is that if you sin willfully after you've come to Jesus, that God's going to kill you, judge you, in much the way that you would have been killed or judged under the law. However, the writer to the Hebrews is not saying that God does what man does to you. He's saying if man did something so severe to you, how much worse do you think you deserve if you stepped across the spirit of grace to sin? So I'll just leave the question out there for you, and it's rhetorical. How much more would you deserve if under an imperfect sacrificial system where it's just a lamb, a goat, a pigeon, a turtle dove, and you sinned against God under that, people could judge you and kill you? What if you had a perfect sacrifice? What if the whole system was perfect and you decided to sin against that? He goes, you'd be, man, it'd be so much worse against the spirit of grace then it would be against the spirit of the systems of this world, right? And the question mark just kind of hangs there in the Bible. 
It just kind of hangs there. It's like, what would it be like to sin against the spirit of grace? He goes, we leave all of that to God. Okay, then what do we do as an audience? We got to learn how to leave it all to God. And what would it look like if we left it all to God? That becomes the question mark. What would it look like if we fell into the hands of God when we walk across the spirit of grace? Now, first of all, I don't even really, I honestly don't even really like to deal with stuff like Hebrews 10, 29. It's a rhetorical device being used by the author to try to tell a Jewish audience, you had it like hell underneath the law. Two or three people could catch you doing wrong, they could kill you. He goes, man, life must be so much better now that you have a better sacrifice. But we don't read it that way. And so we get confused and we take stuff like Hebrews 10 and we put people back under condemnation. And we do that because we honestly think that God is still in the accounting business. And that God is in heaven right now counting your sins against you and watching all of the things that you do and writing them down. And that he's going to play a big video when you get to heaven that shows all of the bad things that you did and how you need to be punished for them. And that if you said, please forgive me just before you died, he'll erase them all. But if you slip, if any of them slip through the cracks that you didn't ask forgiveness for, they'll show up on the video. And I don't know what God's going to do to you, but you fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's kind of how we preach it. And all that is is condemnation and fear because you know you've got some stuff that maybe it slipped through the cracks. Because what we do is we sit in church and go, when's the last time I asked God to forgive me? So it's a Tuesday. This is a Tuesday. I asked God to forgive me on Thursday. Oh, I said that on Saturday and then I did that on Sunday. And, go, oh my God. and then we go, you know, get up here and get all this stuff taken care of. By the way, that would be an imperfect system. Right? That sounds a lot like Torah. That's a two or three witnesses system. But what if we actually believe that God is the judge? That by stepping across the spirit of grace, we move into the vengeance of God. We move into the judgment of God. What would it look like if I actually believe that? Because here's what I think. I don't think people actually believe in the judgment of God. Or at least if they do, they don't believe it the way the New Testament tries to teach it. They see it as some abstract moment in the sky, thousands of years out in the future, where God is going to get back at people for all the things that they did wrong. And that's in a complete ignoring of what Christ was doing on the cross because, and here comes the risk of here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, but let's go. Where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There is now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, I know you old King James lovers know that this feels about half finished. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, right? The heaviness of that first verse dragging the beauty of the front half of that verse down. Well, by the way, the dragging of the beauty of that first verse by, is by design, because the end of verse 1 is actually an interpolation of verse 4. It wasn't in the original Greek, in other words. Some scribe looked at this right here and went, boy, that's, that's a lot of freedom. Let's grab something from another passage and slide it up here in another one. And we didn't figure that out until we started finding older and older and older copies of the Greek that stop right there. Because what Paul writes is, there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And I'm not going to stand up here and argue with you about who's in Christ. 
I'll save that between you and God. What I do know is that if he is lifted up, he intends to drag all unto himself. And so we'll leave it to God about who ends up in Christ and who's out of Christ. But here's the beautiful part about this. The rest of it can remain a mystery, and I'm okay with that. What I don't want to be a mystery is if I'm in Christ, I cannot have condemnation. I want you to remember that phrase. If I'm in Christ, I cannot be condemned. If you struggle with that, that's the thing you need to pray about all week long. If you struggle with the idea that you cannot be condemned because you're in Christ, that's what I want you to focus your prayer life on. That's the beginning. That's the ABCs of the Spirit of Grace. The Spirit of Grace is there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means that if you're allowing other people to condemn you, if you're allowing other people to determine your value, how you feel about yourself, then you're in other people more than you're in Christ Jesus. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you're, and I'm preaching to Paul, you're allowing yourself to be in other people more than you're allowing yourself to be in Christ. Because you're carrying a condemnation that you don't have to carry. Now, if you want to carry it, that's an imperfect sacrificial system. It's just like broken lambs. But if you want to go into a perfect system, Christ carries the condemnation. That's His to carry. Paul goes on five verses later and says this, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Which to me sounds like this. If my mind is focused on the things of the systems of this world, what they say about me, what the system of this world thinks about me, that'll kill me. It'll kill my confidence. It'll kill my peace. It'll kill my joy. I know the more I feed off of what someone else says about me, the more it kills me. The more it robs the joy of my, of my life and my week and my heart, my mind and my ministry. It robs my peace. It robs my joy because I'm carnally minded. Carnally minded does not mean you sit around thinking about sin. Carnally minded is you allow the systems of this world to speak to your mind and you listen to them. And I'm telling you, if you do, it'll kill every good thing in you. It'll rob you blind of joy and peace. To be spiritually minded, which is to think of you in the realm of the Spirit the way the Spirit of grace thinks of you, well, that would be life and peace. Why? Because the Spirit of grace said five verses earlier, there is now therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ. This is the same chapter. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. If you don't believe it, death. If you do believe it, Life and peace. You can be carnally minded if you want to. You can determine your value based on the things, systems of this world. Fine. It'll kill you. It'll rob your joy. If you want to be spiritually minded, it's life and peace. Don't relegate this to a system of religious performances. Don't dare rob the joy of Romans 8, 6 by turning it into. For those of you who think like the world, watch their stuff, listen to their music, read their books. You're going to die and burn into devil's hell. But for those of you who put your mind on things eternal, you'll go to heaven someday. You just put about 15 things in that verse that are in there. But contextually, what is there is, there's no condemnation of those you're in Christ Jesus. So if you believe that, life and peace. How do I know that's what it says? Because that's to be spiritually minded. There's no other way for me to prove to you that there's no condemnation in Christ. That's spirit. That's not natural. There's not like a spot we can go to on planet Earth where you can see that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. It's a faith thing. It's believing that there's no condemnation. Here's what I really think's happened. I really just don't think we believe it. I mean, I think we know it's in the Bible. I just don't think we actually believe it. 
So what I mean is, if I say to you there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, how much condemnation is there? None. But we really only think that's until our next sin. But that's not what Paul says. That's, that's carnally minded. That's thinking like a Hebrews 10 Jew under the old covenant. Two or three witnesses, I'm in trouble. They'll kill me. And then the author goes, well, what would life be like if you actually believed the spirit of grace? What would that look like? If you actually believed in a, a perfect sacrifice, you actually believed the spirit of grace, what might it look like? And so carnally minded, spiritually minded, it's not just the junk that runs through your mind. It's believe or don't believe in what Paul tells you about the gift of no condemnation. Here's another one. The Word became flesh. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God wrapped itself in flesh. This is the way John describes Jesus' incarnation. He says the Word of God actually put on a Put on humanity. It wasn't just a suit. It, I know we say that sort of humorously. He put on an earth suit. But he really became flesh. He didn't just clothe himself in flesh. He became flesh. That's the hypostatic union. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. You go, well, that's 200%. How's that possible? Welcome to Jesus. There's never been a man like him. There's never been a human on the earth like him. The Word became flesh. So if the Word became flesh, you draw among us. Look what we see in Jesus. We saw the glory of God. The very thing Moses asked God to show him. Show me your glory. We saw it in Jesus, John says. And you know what it looked like? Grace and truth. And so, the Spirit of grace is not a what. The Spirit of grace is a who. Who is the Spirit of grace? Not what is the Spirit of grace. Who is the Spirit of grace? And so to step across the spirit of grace is to step across the perfect sacrifice. It's to go back to a system of judging yourself on your works as opposed to allowing the spirit of grace to judge you. Now, I believe that God is the judge. Hebrews 12 even says, We are at Mount Zion, which has the church of the firstborn, numerable company of saints, Christ the mediator, and God the judge. And I'm excited to be on the same mountain as God the judge because I have a good judge. And you want a good judge if you're innocent. Right? And that's why we want a good judge because our innocence is in, there's now therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't believe that? Be carnally minded. That's, that's death. Be spiritually minded, life and peace. It's up to you. Which one you want? You want to think on these things? Or you want to think on those things? You know, think on these things and you're going to believe what other people say about you. And you're going to believe your own press clippings, good or bad. So when you do wrong, you are wrong. You deserve to be punished. Do wrong enough, you deserve to go to hell. Most people in church go, amen, because we're carnally minded. But if we're spiritually minded, we realize that the condemnation has been placed into Christ and we allow God then to be our judge, then we're going to look at the one who is full of the Spirit of grace. That's Jesus, the one full of the Spirit of grace and truth. Jesus is the Spirit of grace. Don't ignore His words over you so that you can go back to the warm blanket of your own works 
and the approval of others and you go, that's not a warm blanket. You know it is. It's exactly why we go back to it. We go ask people what they think of us and then try to live in a way that they will approve of. And that's a warm blanket to our sense of performance. And we slip that baby back on and we call it the Holy Ghost. Do not ignore what the Spirit of grace says about you. What does the Spirit of grace say about you? Well, there's now therefore no condemnation. This is a good place to start. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And since there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, don't go back to the performance-laden world of judgment and works. One more. John 3.18 Those who believe are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemnation according to Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. Condemnation is the position of those who do not trust that Christ has been condemned on their behalf. All of us that fail to believe that Christ has been condemned on our behalf must pick up the mantle of condemnation and wear it ourselves. But those who believe in Him are not condemned. So I want to ask you a question. Do you believe in Jesus, the resurrected man? I mean, this is the simplest question in Christianity. It's really the thing that unifies all of us. Because we've got a bunch of stuff that divides us. Do we believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrected man? We've committed our life to the resurrected man. Of course the answer is yes. Everybody in this room, yeah, I believe that. Okay. If you believe that, you are not condemned. That's in Christ. You are not not condemned until your next failure. You are just straight up not condemned. Okay? I I know we have to let that soak over and over again because it runs so hard against our sense of morality. Let me, let me show you how hard it runs against our sense of morality. Jesus is in public, but we have no evidence in this story that he came to do anything. He's just in town today. So I'm not going to assume what he's doing. It's not fair to the story. All I know is what he does. And what he does is he watches as a group of men bring a woman who is probably covered over with a robe or a blanket at best and physically toss her on the ground in front of Jesus and say to Jesus, we caught this woman committing adultery. John says, in the very act. It's almost like, it, he, like they double down on, mm, it's not questionable. We actually watched for a while. <laughs> that's really the, that's the connotation. Like, Moses needs two or three witnesses. We got 20 or 30, okay? We know what we saw. She deserves to die. Moses' law says that she deserves to die. What do you say? And they're all holding rocks. 
and they have every legal right, they did it right. Two or three witnesses, got it covered. She broke the law, got it covered. You get to stone her to death, got it covered. They're in the right. They're moral, they're upright, they're pious, they're righteous. And they're dead wrong. This is it. John 8 is the moment where the mouth of two or three witnesses and the imperfect sacrifice meet the spirit of grace. Living color, vivid detail. Moses versus Jesus. Morality versus the spirit of grace. Right versus good. Those are not the same thing. If John 8 tells you anything, those are not always the same thing. And Jesus is, of course, pinned. This is a problem because he can't say, ah, forget Moses. Oh, boy. Those rocks that were going to kill her are now going to kill him because that's equivalent of blasphemy. That's like saying the Torah doesn't know what it's talking about. We don't live under that law. He also can't say, adultery, that's no big deal. Because, of course, that's just as blasphemous. Jesus doesn't in any way give us any indication that he doesn't think what the woman did was wrong. But he also doesn't give us any commentary on it. Instead, you know the story. He doodles in the sand, and I got my own theories about what's going on there. And I'll leave them. We've talked about them before. Because it's not really vital to this moment. Because what is vital is that Jesus simply turns the question back on the accuser. If you want to live by that sword, then let's live by that sword, guys. So if you want to live in a world where you die when you fail, because that's what you guys want to do, it's obvious. You brought the woman, you threw her on the ground, you got your rocks, everybody's ready to kill her. Permission granted, he said, the one of you that has no sin, you get to kill her first. You get to throw the first. He doesn't say, don't throw rocks. This is judgmental. This isn't good. He just steps across the line into their world and goes, okay, let's stand in this world and decide who gets to be the judge. If you are qualified to kill another human being because you haven't failed, I encourage you, kill her. Because you know what? Honestly, you should be killing people. If you figured that out and you know how to live this this well, you are God. So act like it. And he goes back to doodling. And I know I put a lot of words in his mouth. What he really says is, he without sin among you casts the first stone. Which is another way of saying, yeah, if you think you're clean, kill her. And then goes back to doodling. And we know that from the oldest to the youngest, the rocks drop and they all turn and walk away. And Jesus then says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? Which forces the woman to look back to Moses. The same Mosaic law that drug her there. She has to turn back to Moses and find her accusers. Where there are none. Moses has met Jesus. And only Jesus is left on the field. And all he really had to do was encourage everybody on the field to judge themselves by the standard of Moses. And the moment that everyone had to judge themselves by the standard of Moses, no one felt qualified to kill. And the only one there 
who is qualified to stone her to death, says to her, woman, now I'm going to play fast and loose, all right? Woman, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know he doesn't quote Romans 8, 1, but by God, he quotes Romans 8, 1. He says what Paul will say to the Roman church and says, if in Christ, there's no condemnation. And the amazing thing is, is we're fighting over who's in Christ in the church. And Jesus has an adulterous woman in front of her. He didn't ask her to confess her sins. He didn't ask her to ask for forgiveness. He didn't take her to the water to river baptize her. He didn't tell her she needed to go present herself to the priest. He just said, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't have any accusers. And he said, well, good news. I don't accuse you either. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It sounds to me like without even asking, she was in Christ. Just sounds to me like without asking, just by virtue of conversing with the Spirit of grace, no condemnation. So you want to know why you need to be talking to Jesus? You want to know why you need a prayer life? You want to know why you need to talk to Him daily? Because that's what He sounds like. He goes, hey, where are your accusers? Who's been cutting you down? Why have you been listening to them? What did they say about you this week? Who do you believe? You believe the voice of Moses? If you do, you are condemned. Maybe you are everything they say you are. I don't see it that way. I don't condemn you. I, I, don't, I don't see you the way that you see you. Give me the next one. The crowd was right. I know I just said a lot of this to you, but I want to put it in print, and I add a couple things here that kind of bring us where I want to go. When we're caught in the, adulter- in the, act, in, in the act, of, act of adultery, the crowd's right. But beware the mob. There's comfort in the mob. Social media has caused us to join the mob a lot of times against people in judgment because it feels good to be right about people being wrong. Watch out for that warm blanket. Watch out for that mob. Because that mob sounds righteous and holy and they're not. There's comfort, but they carry the spirit of the age, whatever that spirit might be. They are the two or three witnesses. And if you live with their sword, you will die by their sword. Okay? Don't be a part of swinging it either. Christ is the spirit of grace. She cannot determine her value based upon their judgment. She has to determine her value based upon Christ's gift of no condemnation. He has the right to judge her, and he chooses not to. And here we are, so worried about whether she's allowed to go back to adultery that we can't even celebrate her liberation. That's how I've heard that preached my entire life. We get to the end of the story and we feel so nervous that our crowds are going to feel like they can go back and commit adultery this week. This is what happens to preachers. We preach John 8. We get so scared that somebody's in the crowd that thinks adultery's cool now. Like they're so mentally backward that they think blowing their marriage up would be an awesome proposition because they can do it without condemnation. By the way, I got news for you. You can blow your marriage up without condemnation. There is now, I'm, I'm dead. There is now therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Your righteousness is not whether or not you cheat on your spouse. Your righteousness is in Christ. Now, does that make you want to go blow up your marriage? If you're a moron, it does. (laughs) 
<laughs> really. But we'll get to the end of that message. We're so scared somebody there will take us serious about the gift of no condemnation, go out and sin. We can't even celebrate her liberation because we have to do a whole set of sermons on whether or not she ever went out and committed adultery again. Because Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And I believe the reason Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, is because look at what it got you into. Take the gift I give you and live free of this garbage. I don't take the gift back from you if you go commit adultery again. You can walk right back to the same bedroom they pulled you out of. And what you take with you is neither do I condemn you. It's not neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, and if you sin again, I'll condemn you. It's neither do I condemn you. Take that gift and go live. And in the middle of living, live out of and live from the Spirit of, gra Spirit of Grace. The Spirit of Grace liberates us. This is just some thoughts. The Spirit of Grace liberates us. The Spirit of this age works to suppress our liberty. I think we have a problem right now, a push in the world against the Spirit of Grace. I think grace has so saturated the church of Jesus Christ. I do think the systems of darkness are fighting against individual liberty in a very powerful way. And I think anybody that sort of stands up in individual liberty starts to get squashed, starts to get pressed down. The spirit of grace is radical. The spirit of the age is suppressive and conforming. It forces you into line. It'll masquerade as being open and inclusive, but that's only to the people it perceives as going in the same direction. Don't ever forget that. The spirit of this age, which always, a lot of times, and I'm talking the left and the right, they want to talk about being inclusive. They want to talk about accepting all, but it really only comes down to if you agree. The minute you don't agree, we don't really accept you at all. In fact, we will punish you. The mob will turn on you fast. We've seen that in the social media world in the last decade, like in real time, to watch the mob turn on whatever tries to be a little too individualistic. Our answer is not liberalism, it's grace. Our answer is not conservatism, it's grace. And we keep turning to the systems of this age, the ideologies of this age, thinking that we're going to find God through the ideologies of this age. We're just going to end up right back in Hebrews 10 where we have an imperfect sacrificial system built on two or three witnesses. The mob mentality that judges us rather than the spirit of grace. I want to be judged by the spirit of grace. I trust the spirit of grace. I trust the Jesus that goes, neither do I condemn you, Paul. There's now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. I trust that. Yeah. This just some thoughts. I don't know how long I want to linger here. It just, I even thought about not putting this in because it's kind of those, I'm going to say this as a disclaimer. This is the kind of stuff I work out up here and then I start working out out here and sometimes it's too much for people. So warning, <laughs> if you fear things can be too much for you, just paw, just fast forward. All right. We're terribly dogmatic in regards to what we think, and we're not nearly dogmatic enough in regards to what we believe. And what I mean by that is most of our disagreements are with what people think. I can think on the possibility of universalism, reincarnation, soul sleep. I could list about 20 other things. You go, gosh, you would think about that? Sure, I'll think about it. I'll think about the possibility of it. I might even believe it more than you think I do. 
or at least think about it a little more seriously than you think I do. But the truth is, I really only believe in Jesus. At the end of the day, I don't, I don't have a lot of belief in doctrines. I have a lot, I'm dogmatic about Jesus. I'm like, I'm, I'm like over the edge dogmatic about Christ. Like really, I really am that crazy dude that believes Jesus resurrected and that he's everything he said he was. And I don't think we should put a muzzle on him and silence the Lamb of God so that he sounds more familiar. I just, I'm, I'm just crazy about him. But I'm not crazy about the stuff I think. I got a lot of opinions. Some of them I'm pretty passionate about, and they're pretty stupid. <laughs> and some of them I'm not so passionate about, but I'm not sure they're not genius. I'm just not smart enough to figure them out. <laughs> That's my issue. I'm just not smart enough to figure them out. They're in there, and I just can't work on them enough. And I'm not smart enough to land where I need to land. But I don't believe in any of them. You know, people want to fight about stuff all the time. We're just fighting about thoughts. These are just thoughts. I don't know if we're right, but I believe in Jesus. I'm willing to die believing in Jesus. To believe in a risen Savior, I'm willing to put my life on the line that Christ is real. Not just in me, but real so I can think about a bunch of stuff. I really only believe in Jesus because faith is trust in a person. Faith is not trust in a philosophy. In a very real sense, I have faith in Natasha, but I don't believe in our marriage. I believe in her. I don't believe in stuff. I believe in people. I believe in Christ. All the accoutrements. Some of them are beautiful. I like them. They're expressions of the faith. I might want to use them myself. Some of them I'm not so big on. But that's just me. I believe in people. And I think it's the way we ought to... Don't get so wrapped up in an ideology and a thought process you forget there are people affected by it. It's the people you love. If it's just the thought you love and then when the people get involved, it bothers you, then you probably aren't as serious about the thought as you thought you were. We find that a lot in our activism. We're real active about an idea, and then we meet the people involved, and we're like, I could do without them. You know, it's like, that's kind of like, I love humanity and I can't stand people. Have you noticed that? That, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I just love people. And then you don't like to deal with them. <laughs> okay, let's rethink that. It's, it's people. It's not just stuff. All right. Um, my last thought. I just want a one-sentence thought. Drop dead to being right and let grace abound. That's it, man. Just drop dead to being right about stuff. Believe in Jesus and let grace abound. Why? Because he is the spirit of grace. What I really want to accomplish in this word, first of all, I want, it's, it's cathartic to me to speak out the stuff the Holy Spirit speaks in me. I get it out. I hear it. I work on it. I wrestle with it. Great. Um, but I really wanted, I want you to know, and you to know, that I don't know that any of us are radical enough about the Spirit of Grace. If we truly believe the Spirit of Grace, we have to stop believing any of the voices of the Spirit of this age. No matter how moral they sound, no matter how right they sound, no matter how mosaic they sound, no matter how lock, solid, judgmental. that Did you know that when you stood there that day at John 8, they had a whole Torah's worth of verses that gets that woman stoned to death? 
So when people start firing verses at you in the Bible, and I'm not, I'm, I love this, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a disciple of the Bible. I love to read the Bible where it shows me Jesus. There's a bunch of other moments I move right past. If I don't see Jesus there, I'll move on. I don't have to memorize that verse, make it part of my life. I leave that alone. People are going to throw verses at you. We love to do this. Weaponize scripture. Chunk them like grenades at people from a long way off. And I just, before you let that shake you, because it, there's a spirit behind it that will shake you. Before you let it shake you, just t- say time out. And I want you to take your mind back to that street corner with Jesus doodling in the sand and the woman thrown at his feet. And I want you to realize that all the lobbed scriptures are on their side. And the only thing on Jesus' side is the spirit of grace. Okay? And that'll help. I don't mean it'll take the pain away. It'll help. Because at the end of the day, I'd like to be on the side of the spirit of grace than 68 lobbed verses, like stones. I don't care how moral the high ground is or how high the moral ground is. I want to be on the side of the spirit of grace. I know you do too. One of the things that's pulled us together is the spirit of grace. That's why we're in this room. Honestly, is because we come to a place where we can talk safely about the spirit of grace without 15 qualifiers. So I'm trying to qualify grace all the time. You're trying to qualify, oh, 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 but, oh yeah, maybe. It's just, we just get radical about the spirit of grace, radical about Jesus. I still don't think we've been radical enough about the beauty of the spirit of grace. This is all his doing. It's his table. It's his church. It's his body. It's his blood. It's his baptism. And in him, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that one, in Christ, we are one. Not because we've all lived the same way, but because we've all received the same gift, the gift of no condemnation. Let's pray. And uh, of all the stuff you can remember tonight, take that thought of Jesus with that woman. Take that thought that the spirit of grace is only on one side of that line. And if you miss everything else, just drop dead to being right all the time. Being right in your judgments, being right. Even being right in your morality. Because we do that. We think that that is the sign that we are spiritually growing up. Because we're getting our morals right. And sometimes we're doing it from a position of trying to please God. And you are already holy and acceptable. Father, thank you. What a day. What a night. Thank you for Jesus, the Spirit of grace. You spoke a clear word in my heart this last week. And that, that word propelled this message tonight. And that word was that if that I too often can allow what others say or think to be construed as the voice of God. And the more I prayed on it, the more I realized it was voices from my past. It was stuff I remember hearing. And I heard it for so long as gospel that I oftentimes confuse it as your voice. 
deliver me from that by giving me again a fresh revelation of the spirit of grace where your voice is the voice that matters. I pray that for all of my friends in Jesus' name. Amen.